If you've got a Bible with you, let me encourage you to open to the book of Acts. We are back in Acts, getting after it this morning, chapter 25. We haven't been here since June, so I'm excited to continue our verse-by-verse study in this incredible book, the book of Acts, telling the narrative of the early church. And this morning, we're going to be in chapter 25, verses 1 through 12. I've entitled the sermon, Do Not Be Afraid. Do not be afraid. We're in Acts chapter 25, and we'll look again at verses 1 through 12 together this morning. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priest and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the man of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea And the next day, he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death, but if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go." Father, we're grateful this morning to be able to be back in the book of Acts to read the next section here in our narrative of the early church and the ministry of Peter and now Paul. And we pray, God, that you would teach us what you want us to learn from these verses that would encourage us to be fearless even in the midst of persecution, to be fearless in the midst of accusations, to be fearless in any trial or circumstance we find ourselves in, that our courage would be in the Lord Jesus Christ and that our goal would be to exalt high the name of Jesus in all aspects of our situation, God. So thank you for the example we see here. Use it in our own lives, we pray this morning in Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's a story about a little girl in the 1980s living at Camp Hope in New York. This was a a special facility which served the mentally and physically handicapped children. And this precious little girl rebelled against going to bed in the evenings. And so the counselors had to struggle patiently with her for she would fuss and fight each night. 
And when they finally asked her why she resisted going to bed, she simply explained, I have a disease that could end my life at any moment. And when I go to bed at night, I could go to sleep and never wake up again. This is why I am afraid. The counselors knew that she was right. A few days later, an evangelistic outreach was held close by this facility, and the little girl heard the gospel for the first time. And she heard about the hope of salvation through Christ alone, and she heard about eternal life being offered as a gift for all who would repent and believe in Jesus. And so she turned to Christ, and she was born again. Uh, she even maneuvered her wheelchair to be able to go up to the front in order to affirm her testimony. And that night, and every night thereafter, she no longer struggled when it was time to go to bed. She said to one of her counselors, if I die tonight, I know I'll go and be with the Lord. Throughout most of Paul's ministry, particularly during his third missionary journey and the trial narratives, Paul faced reoccurring danger. And we have seen this in his life time and time again. But we've also seen Paul's courage and his absence of fear even in the face of death. Now, with the Jews threatening to kill Paul again, like we've read here in our passage, they were just trying to get him to travel back to Jerusalem to have another shot. And yet in our passage this morning, we see that Paul continued to show resiliency and reliance on God's strength and on God's wisdom. And Paul appealed without hesitation to the Supreme Court of Rome. And in verse 11, we hear Paul saying, if then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. Paul, having been exonerated before Roman judges before, believed that life rather than death was what God had called him to, and he knew that he had to get to Rome. And so he was still on a mission to fulfill his, his god appointment, God called appointment to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And of course, there's a lot more Gentiles in Rome than there was in Jerusalem. Whatever the case may be, we can't escape the basic principle here, which is simply this. Paul was able to minister effectively because he had no fear of death. Many present-day Christians are paralyzed by the fear of dying and therefore never quite experience the freedom of living. Think of the release of life it must take, the total dependence upon God to enter into a known danger area as a missionary and perhaps even in an unreached place. Thousands of missionaries have done just that in the last hundred years alone, and scores of them have died in the process they put their total trust in God, whatever the outcome. And if God chooses death, they were quite prepared to die, like Paul was, and to move on to their heavenly home. Now, let's not confuse this courage to die with some morbid striving for martyrdom. Paul showed precisely the reverse of that when he repeatedly appealed to his Roman citizenship to save him from punishment, imprisonment, and at times death. God never asks us to purposely pursue death as a hero in order to prove that we trust him. But God does expect us to use wisdom and God-given common sense, but at the same time be willing to take some risks as we rest in the fact that our lives are in his hands. God has 
great plans for each one of us. And his plan includes living lives of resolve and courage and obedience. And God desires that we live lives of godliness and of service to him. And to live out those plans, we must be free from the fear of death. And so this morning, I want to talk to you about three different people with three different fears and how they handled them. So first, we're going to be reminded of how Felix feared the truth. Secondly, we'll see how Festus feared the Jews. And then third, and finally, we'll look at how Paul feared nothing. So that's our our three headings this morning. Let's start off with number one, Felix feared the truth. And your first blank, if you are taking notes this morning, says that he, referring to Felix, was afraid of Paul's faith. He was afraid of Paul's faith. We're going to back up just a little bit to the end of chapter 24, starting in verse 24, where it says, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about his faith in Christ Jesus. So again, I know it's been a little while since we've been in Acts, so let me give you a quick refresher of exactly where we are in this book. We're at the end of Paul's third and final missionary journey, and he had come back to the city of Jerusalem. And as he was headed there, he was warned that he would be bound hand and foot by by some people and turned over to the authorities. And Paul didn't, he didn't care. He knew that God had called him to to Jerusalem and beyond. And so nothing was going to get in his way. In, In fact, Paul said in Acts 21 verse 13, for I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And so Paul was bringing some gifts, a collection of offerings, which many of the Gentile churches had taken up in order to give to the saints there in Jerusalem who were in need. And while he was there in Jerusalem, if you remember, Paul was sponsoring some Jewish men in a purification ritual at the temple connected with the Nazarite vow. And at that time, Paul was arrested because he was accused of bringing Trophimus a, 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 a Gentile from, 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 a, from Ephesus into the temple to defile it. That's what he was being accused of. And of course, this, was not, this is not true. Nevertheless, the Jews began to beat on Paul. They were seeking to kill him. And if the Roman soldiers hadn't have intervened and arrested Paul, then he would have died. And the, the Roman soldiers assumed that he must have committed some outrageous crime. And so orders were given for Paul to be flogged But at that point, he revealed to the centurion that he was actually a Roman citizen and he was uncondemned. And so after the tribune held off of this illegal punishment, a plot was made there by 40 Jewish men who conspired to neither eat or drink until they had killed Paul. And the the plot got exposed and then it was Claudius Lysias, who was the tribune leader there, he decided it was time to transport Paul by night to Caesarea, where he would be judged by Governor Felix. This brings us up close to where we are here. Felix was not highly regarded by the Romans, and he was actually on probation for his brutal tactics for being incompetent to keep peace in the district. He was also married to his third wife, Drusilla, who he had lured away from her husband. Needless to say, Felix needed to hear what Paul had to say. 
And he needed to also rule correctly on this case because it was such a volatile situation. This is where we pick up here in verse 24 again of chapter 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about his faith in Christ Jesus. And so obviously, Paul shared about his faith. He shared about his testimony. He shared about how Jesus had revealed himself to Paul on the road to Damascus. Paul had shared about his faith in the Lord Jesus who alone can save people from their sins. And Felix, somewhat familiar, being married to a Jewish woman with the customs of the Jews, is now afraid of Paul's faith. Paul wasn't taking the time so much to go into great detail about the accusations that were made against him as he was going into detail about the faith that saved him. And so we see that that Felix is kind of afraid of Paul's faith. Felix is also your second blank. He was afraid of Paul's conviction. Because as Paul gets going here, demonstrating uh, his faith, he says in verse 25, and as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed. There's the word for afraid again. He was alarmed and he said, go away for the present and when I get an opportunity, I will summon you. So again here, Paul wanted to talk about righteousness about how there is a standard that God has set in his word and how we have all fallen short of the glory of God and we've all fallen short of Christ's righteousness and our best works are but filthy rags. So he's waxing eloquently about the righteousness of God. And then Paul began to talk in verse 25 about the fact that God's given us self-control. We're to exercise self-control. Not only is there a standard, but God expects us to pursue righteousness. He expects us to exercise self-control. He expects us to walk in obedience to his word. And then Paul, there in verse 25, talked about the coming judgment. So here's the three things. Righteousness, there's a standard that God has set. Only Christ can fulfill. Self-control, you and I are accountable to walk in accordance to God's law. And then there's judgment. It's all gonna come to an end one day. There is a day in which God will judge the world and all those who are in Christ and all those who have repented from their sins and trusted in the sacrifice of Christ and in his righteousness will be saved. But all those who have not who have rejected Christ, who have rejected God's standard, more importantly, rejected God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, will have no self-control, and they will be judged and condemned to death. This is the message that Paul's giving there as he's on trial before Felix. And I'm saying to you this morning, Felix was afraid. He was alarmed to hear this kind of boldness, this kind of confrontation, Paul, you know, Paul was supposed to be being judged, and now Paul, in a sense, is attacking. He's on the offensive, sharing the true gospel message. And so Felix is alarmed, and he says, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Unfortunately, Felix procrastinated. Felix delayed. Felix postponed any decision about his own personal life or his own personal faith. And then we read your next blank in verses 26 through 27 that he was afraid of Paul's release, meaning that he didn't want to let Paul go. He wanted to keep him under custody, verse 26 and 27. At the same time, he hoped that money might be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor Felix left Paul in prison. 
So again, verse 26 said he would send for him time to time, not because he was interested, but because he wanted money. He thought somehow that this prisoner or those that supported the prisoner would give this, this judge a bribe in order to let the prisoner go. He, he, was, he was afraid to let him go, though, because he knew the Jews wanted Paul condemned. That's why verse 27 says it's two years have now elapsed. Felix is then replaced by Porcius Festus, and but he desired to do the Jews a favor. Felix had left Paul in prison. So he had been stuck in this situation for two years. No verdict, no acquittal, no progress whatsoever in Paul's case. And Felix was really desiring, again, to just do the Jews a favor. He was okay with complacency. He was okay with procrastination. Felix was okay with just kicking the can down the road. Felix was afraid of what the Jews may do to him if he let Paul go free. But it was too late. Because of Felix's stubbornness and brutality on a number of other situations, the Jews had actually complained to the emperor, who was Nero at this time, and Nero had Felix removed from office, and he replaced him with Festus. The main point I'm trying to make here is that Felix was afraid. He was afraid of the truth. He was afraid of God's word. He was afraid to do the right thing. He was afraid of the message of the gospel. He was afraid of the Christian faith that was built on the God-man, Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And sometimes when we're confronted with the truth, we can become afraid as well. If you're living a life that's apart from God and you hear God's word proclaimed and you hear God's word preached, then it might strike fear in your heart. And the reality of the situation is that without God's grace, through Christ, we are all doomed. The truth is that God sent Jesus to die for sinners like you and like me. And the truth is we must turn from our lives of sin and trust Christ in order to no longer be afraid of the truth. That's the beauty of becoming a Christian. No longer are you afraid of God and the message of the gospel. You're transformed by the truth and you want to hear more of it. And you want to say, hey, I can't hear enough about heaven and I can't even hear enough about hell because it just somehow rings true that whatever Christ taught, whatever the scriptures teach is something I want to embrace the truth and allow the truth of God's word to reign and to rule in my life. So if you're here this morning and you have a fear of the truth like Felix did, let me encourage you to be afraid no longer. Come to Jesus today and he will by no means cast you out. There's a God who loves sinners and a savior who was given the ultimate sacrifice and his Holy Spirit that can regenerate you and empower you to walk in obedience to God's word. Felix was afraid of the truth. I pray that you wouldn't be afraid, but you would come to the truth this very day. Secondly, the second person that was afraid was Festus, and Festus feared the Jews. Now, Felix feared the Jews too, but I think he was even more afraid of just the message Paul brought. But here we see how Festus really did fear the Jews as well. Your next blank, he wanted to know what the Jews thought. He wanted to know what the Jews thought. So now we're here in our main text, chapter 25, 1 through 3. It says, now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. So just remember, Caesarea is on the coast, Jerusalem's inland. They would have gone up uh, several thousand 
10,000 feet uh, with the topography of the land. Verse 2, and the chief priest and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. So again, we learned in the last verse of Acts 24 that this is Porcius Festus. This man was essentially unknown before this time here in Judea. Festus's rule was actually extremely short. Festus was a member of the Roman nobility. And first century Jewish historian Josephus described him as better than his predecessor, Felix, and that he was also better than his successor, Albanus. And he appears to be an able leader, even though he died after two years in office. And when Festus had initially arrived as the new governor over Judea, he inherited the political problems left by Felix. And Felix's callousness and his cruelty had left a legacy of animosity and hatred towards Rome by the Jews. And their hostility and suspicion now focused on Festus, their new Roman overlord in occupied Palestine. Unlike Felix, Festus was not a procrastinator. He moved swiftly to acquaint himself with the situation. And after three short days in Caesarea, he decided to go up to Jerusalem, no doubt to meet the Jewish leaders, including the high priest and the Sanhedrin. And as much as possible, Festus probably wanted to conciliate them. He probably knew that the leaders were the key to establishing peace in Judea. And it was maintaining peace that would have been the primary goal for the new governor. One item very heavy on the minds of the religious authorities was this trial for Paul. And they knew their case was so weak that the only way they could rid themselves of Paul was by ambush while being transferred from Caesarea to Jerusalem as they had requested. On the surface, this request for a favor that they would summon Paul to Jerusalem, it seemed innocent enough. But as verse 3 makes abundantly clear in the second part, it was because they had another murderous plot forming. Uh, the older ambush plot, if you remember, has, has, it was two years ago, and it was foiled by Paul's nephew, who revealed to the tribune, Claudius Lysias, that they were trying to kill him, and that's when Lysias sent Paul to Caesarea. But now there's a new plot. The hatred and the bitterness of the Jews, these leaders, it cannot be ignored. They hated Christ and they had him crucified. They hated James, the brother of John, and had him killed with the sword in chapter 12. They hated Paul and they desperately wanted him to suffer the same demise. There was nothing godly about these unbelieving Jews. There was only pride and hypocrisy. Isaiah couldn't have described them any better as he did in chapter 29 verse 13 when he said these people draw near with their mouth and they honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me bottom line the Jews had not changed their view of Paul and they wanted to see him dead on the first plot they had supported the previous conspiracy but on the second plot they're now spearheading this plan to ambush and kill Paul while trying to hoodwink Festus. 
Let's move on to verses 4 and 5, your next blank. He, he wanted the Jews to come with him to Caesarea. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So he's going to go back to Caesarea. So he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me. So go down from Jerusalem to Caesarea. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. Evidently, Festus felt at this time that their request was unreasonable. So he promised to reopen the case, but only in Caesarea. Paul was already there, and Festus was returning there soon, and so Festus also had no desire to rescue Paul. He just wanted things to be done decently and in order. The prisoner was already in Caesarea, and Festus barely had time to acquaint himself with the prisoner Paul or with the two major cities of of Caesarea and Jerusalem that were main cities under his jurisdiction. So he was hardly in a position to make promises to a group of religious authorities when a man's life and Festus's job were at stake. And so before we think too highly of Festus's noble endeavors, however. Please pay attention to what happens in verse 9. And your next blank says he did want to do the Jews a favor. He wanted to do the Jews a favor. And if you'll skip down to verse 9, it says, But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried by these charges before me? And so we see here in verse 9, at this point, Festus really was influenced by the Jewish request to have Paul move back to Jerusalem. Even though there was no proof whatsoever for the accusations made against Paul, Festus was still wanting to do the Jews a favor. And so from this, we see that Festus is a true politician wanting to please the most people possible. And we can also guess that Festus was more influenced by the Jews who were in power than he was by Paul who was in custody. And while we see that Festus would still reside over the case in Jerusalem, he was giving in to peer pressure of accommodating the Jews' request. And this ought to be very concerning because certainly by this time, Festus would have been fully aware that the Jews had already beaten Paul unlawfully, heard about Paul's defense, and even though They had nothing to kill him for. They wanted to, and they were trying to kill him uh, earlier, and they're going to try to kill him again. There's got to be some problem here. And if Festus is truly being objective, he should have either acquitted Paul or recommended that Paul go to Rome to be tried. But he didn't. He caved. He was overcome by the fear of man. Festus, in a, fear, in a fear of man sort of way, wanted to see if Paul would be willing to go back to Jerusalem and face whatever charges would be brought against him there. At the end of the day, Festus feared the Jews. He, he wanted to be able to grant them whatever favor they asked, and he knew that just as the Jews had appealed to remove his predecessor, Felix, the same thing could happen to him. Fear of man. Are you afraid about what others think about you. It's a, it's a common struggle for all of us in the church today. What, what do people think about me? What do people think about the decisions I'm making? What am I supposed to do? How can I keep everybody happy? Do you struggle with the fear of man? Are you sometimes willing to show someone special favor at the expense of someone else? It's all a part of human nature, but it's also a part of our sinful nature. Deuteronomy 
31.6 says, be strong and courageous, do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Proverbs 29.25, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Galatians 1.10, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. These are just some verses that remind us throughout the Bible. It's a common, ongoing problem. Then instead of saying, what does God's word say? And how could I honor my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? We become too much concerned about what people think. What will they think about me? Now, I'm not saying it's not important to have a good reputation. I'm not saying it's not important to want people to think well of you, but that's not the primary goal, right? The primary goal is always, I want to serve God. I want to be faithful to do what God wants me to do. And obviously, Festus doesn't know God. So he's going to be controlled now, humanly speaking, by what these Jews really wanted. And so what we've seen so far is Felix is fearing the truth. Festus is fearing man. And so let's take a look at number three in our outline this morning. What did Paul fear? Number three says Paul feared nothing. Paul feared nothing. Your next blank, he was not afraid of false accusations. Not afraid of false accusations. Verses six through eight, after he stayed among them, not more than eight or 10 days, he went down to Caesarea and the next day took his seat on the tribunal, uh, on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him bringing many accusations, many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. Paul had no reason to be on trial. Felix's incompetence in failing to declare an acquittal when there had been no evidence to retain the prisoner has now caused another trial for the apostle. And these verses paint an angry picture of Jewish officials circling Paul and hurling charges at him. Yet none of the accusations could be sustained either by proof or by witness against him. The charges have not been changed from what was brought against Paul before. They had been accusing him of breaking the Mosaic law in Acts 21, 28. They had accused him of defiling the temple in Acts 24, verse 6. They had accused Paul of committing treason against Rome, also in Acts 24, verse 6. And Paul had already denied all of these accusations, but he does so here again in verse 8 when Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, it would be the Mosaic law, neither against the temple, the second temple period there in Jerusalem that King Herod built, nor against Caesar. Have I committed any offense? As difficult as this may be, Paul, he seemed to thrive and actually grow even stronger in the midst of these false accusations. And when we are falsely accused, we can continue to trust in the Lord and in the power of his might in the midst of our persecution. Remember Daniel was taken up out of the lion's den and no kind of harm was found on him because Daniel 6.23 says he had trusted in his God. 1 John 5.4 says, for everyone who has been born of God 
overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. The false accusations of our enemies, though they may hurt, and at times they may alienate us from those that we love, they cannot do us ultimate harm. We require only God's approval and acceptance. And if Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, then we have it. Ephesians 1, 5 through 6, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace which he has blessed us in the beloved. Jesus said in John 17, 23, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Romans 8 is a far greater reminder. I'm talking about how you don't have to have fear of man. I'm talking about how you don't have to fear accusations because what you, all you have to have is a remembrance of what God has promised to you. He's, he's elected you. He's saved you by grace if you're in Christ this morning. And then Romans 8, incredible reminder, verses 33 and 34, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That passage goes on in verse 38 to say, for I am sure that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul knew that. Paul wrote that. And so even though Paul was slandered by his own people, he knew the security of his precious Savior and the same assurance can fuel our lives as well. And so when the official Jewish spokesman came to Caesarea to testify against the Apostle Paul, even after two years, his accusers still had no case on him. It's sad to see how evil is so entrenched in our world. Why do pro-abortion politicians seem to get reelected time and time again, sometimes more easily than a pro-life candidate? Why does a drunk driver walk away from a wreck while a precious two-year-old is killed? Why do Christians get accused of hate speech while others can riot and loot and wreak havoc with little to no consequences? Like us, the psalmist Asaph lamented the apparent immunity of the wicked. Remember Psalm 73 where Asaph is just contemplating, how come the wicked seem to get away with everything? And how come as a Christian, I seem to be suffering? And he writes in that Psalm, Psalm 73, that their pride is a necklace and violence covers them as a garment. Psalm 73, verse seven, their hearts overflow with follies. Verse nine, they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Verse 10, therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. At this point, Asaph is very frustrated how can this keep happening? How can people living a wicked life still seem to, to be living a, a great life from an external perspective? It's easy to be frustrated and even to mourn 
this seeming injustice to forget for a moment that God is still the judge and that he will make all things right in his time. And then Asaph, in Psalm 73, comes to his senses in verses 16 and 17 where he says, but when I thought of how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. So he's like, man, I'm trying to understand all how the world works and how to trust God even when it seems like the wicked are having their way and I'm getting tired until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. It's a great pivotal moment there in Psalm 73 where he then understands, oh yeah, God's gonna judge them and it's gonna, his judgment's gonna come as quick as, as the storm that we're facing this morning and just in a second, he's gonna wipe them out. It, when we are wrongly accused, slandered, or treated harshly, we must remember that God, the judge of heaven, will hold people accountable. Remember, this is Paul's message. He talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. It's going to happen. And so God holds people accountable. We must keep on loving our enemies, though, in the midst of it. As Jesus commanded in Matthew 5, 43 and 44, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And so rather than becoming bitter or giving up hope, we must recognize the futility and the flighty nature of our opponent's efforts against us. In the words of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, We ought never fear those who are defending the wrong side. For since God is not with them, their wisdom is folly, their strength is weakness, and their glory is their shame. I would also remind you that at times, at times of malicious accusations and mistreatments that that you may be receiving, these are also opportunities for us to be in prayer. And for us to grow through the trial, for us to trust God. Again, Spurgeon says on this, he says, quote, Often the less we say to our foes and the more we say to our best friend, capital F, the better it will fare for us. Again, the less we say to our foes and the more we say to our best friend, the better it will fare for us. In other words, Spurgeon is saying, spend more time praying about it. Less time complaining about it and more time praying about it. And when faced with groundless accusations, Paul did not go on a rampage, but clearly and calmly stated the facts of his innocence. And perhaps he was remembering and demonstrating even the opening verses of Psalm 109. That psalm says, Be not silent, O God, of my praise. For wicked and deceitful mouths are open against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return, for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. That's the answer of the psalmist, right? You're getting accused? Turn to prayer. Turn to God. I give myself to prayer. And so, we got to understand that in the midst of these false accusations that might even come your way, there's opportunities for us to even to, to hold an honest view of ourselves. Even if the charges leveled against us aren't true, 
We can certainly understand that whether you're in a legal proceeding or in a passing conversation with a friend or, or there's misguided media attacking the Christian way, we still want to evaluate our hearts before God. None of us is perfect, and we all have areas in which we need to grow spiritually. And this may even be what God uses to help us realize our own shortcomings and our own limitations. But whatever the case, we can continue to serve our Lord with a clear conscience to confess our sin to him and allow him to help us become the man or the woman that he wants us to be. Trials help shape us and to grow us and to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. And of course, the supreme godly example of how to respond to false accusations comes from our supreme Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 and following, it says, for this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So the passage is talking about, you're gonna go through hard times? Yeah. You're going to go through hard times. So did Christ. But he left an example so that we could follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was there any deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. In other words, Jesus fully trusted in the sovereignty of God. That God was going to take care of things however God wanted to take care of things. That's from his human point of view. Obviously, Jesus was also divine. And while Festus and Felix both struggled with fear of man, Paul did not. Oswald Chambers said, the remarkable, the remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. I think it's safe to say that Paul feared God, and so therefore he didn't fear anything else, including these false accusations that were brought against him. And then in verses 9 through 12, we see that he was not afraid to use the laws of government. Paul was not afraid to use the laws of government. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Paul said this, uh, Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not escape death. I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges, then I appeal to Caesar. That's what he's saying there in verse 11. And so apparently at this point, Festus wanted to try one more time, as we discussed earlier, to use the situation to his own political advantage to do the Jews a favor and to help himself in this process. And again, why Festus suddenly and willingly refused to do it, didn't do it earlier, and now he wants to do it now, we, we don't know. But certainly something in him flipped. Even though there wasn't enough evidence to warrant Paul's continuing imprisonment, much less to justify another trial. And yet, to Festus' credit, he gave Paul a choice. And he did not force the situation to go this way. This was probably because of his high respect for Paul's Roman citizenship. But certainly, the sovereignty of God was the overriding factor. And then notice 
verses 10 through 11, which is most admirable. Again, this is kind of the heart of our passage. Paul's saying, look, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I've done nothing wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to the charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. So as Paul again, declares his innocence. He was not being egotistical or boastful. He was simply and truthfully saying that he had not committed any crime. And he stated that his arrest and imprisonment were unjustified. And he's saying that Festus knew this, that he was innocent. And so for the ruler to go along with the situation was to participate in some type of shady act So Christ's brave ambassador then took a bold step for his own safety and for the further proclamation of the gospel, he actually said, I appeal to Caesar, realizing that he would not receive justice from Festus or from the Jews. He submitted his case to the authority of the emperor Nero himself. And this was a right that was possessed by every Roman citizen. And Paul did not do this because Caesar was a Christian or some just leader. He was neither. Paul did it because it was the smart and appropriate thing to do. And perhaps he also felt spirit-led to make his appeal because God had told him that he would minister in Rome. Remember how Jesus had encouraged Paul earlier in Acts 23, verse 11, after Paul was first arrested? The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So Paul knew he wasn't going to be killed by the Jews there in Caesarea or Jerusalem. He knew he was going to Rome. Christ had already promised that to him. So there's absolutely no fault, though, for Paul to use the provisions that God gave him for his life and for the continuation of his ministry. And the same is true for us. There is nothing wrong for us to appeal to Caesar. There is nothing wrong for us to use the laws of the government to help provide some of the rights and the freedoms that we have. Now, again, the government's not the ultimate authority. God is. We know that. But we also know that in recent years, this has come to a crux, has it not? And we can appreciate in recent years Grace Community Church, other churches that have been in deep litigation about continuing to worship, even in the midst of the mandates to not sing and to wear masks. And you guys remember those horrible days, (laughs) right? And we can be thankful that God gave freedom to us here in our country and that many churches stood up. I mean, we stood up as well. We're just little peons, you know what I'm saying, on the scale of like, you know, news in America, you know, I, I was in the news years ago, but it was for another reason, right? Uh, but for this, it was like, you know what, we're just, we're still going to do what we're going to do, but we're, we're not, we're not uh, in a full court case like Grace Community and several other churches, but I just want you to notice how they appealed to Caesar. John Calvin stated, God, who has appointed courts of law, also gives his people liberty to use them lawfully, Again, to be fair, I would say Grace Church didn't really appeal to Caesar, they appealed to God, but they utilized, what I'm trying to say, the laws given in our land to go to court 
and to pursue law lawfully. And we're saying that's a very good and healthy and right thing to do. And that's really why government is given by God, is to help promote that kind of organization as Romans 13, 1 through 7 clearly teaches that God ordained human government to punish wrongdoers and to reward those who do what's right. And Paul did well to use his rights as a Roman citizen to protect himself and to extend his ministry. Just think of what God has done through his servants who used that which God made available to them. For example, William Wilberforce was a strong Christian and a member of British Parliament in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, and he championed the abolition of slavery and exercising spiritual determination and using all the legitimate political resources at his disposal. He persevered in his calling for more than 20 years and was used by God to bring an end to slavery in the British Empire. So at this point, Festus conferred with a council of leading citizens as the Roman governors did in those days. And verse 12 there discusses how he conferred with them and he says, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Festus was now obligated to send Paul to Caesar even though there was no solid charges against him. Paul, he's fearless. He's not afraid of false accusations. He's not afraid to use the laws of government. And your last blank says he's not afraid of death. He is not afraid of death. Again, backing up to verse 11, he says, look, if I deserve to die, I'm willing to die. I don't escape, I don't seek to escape death. So the real advantage and the real freedom that Paul had here was that he was not afraid to die. And he made it clear that he was willing to die if, he could be, if it could be proven that he was guilty of some capital crime. There were many people in the Bible who were not afraid to die. King David was not afraid to die. That's why he had the courage to face Goliath. Micaiah was not afraid to die. That's why he chose to speak the truth in front of all the lying prophets. Elijah was not afraid to die. That's why he faced the 450 prophets of Baal. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not afraid to die. That's how they were willing to be thrown into the fiery furnace. Daniel was not afraid to die. That's how he got thrown into the lion's den. John the Baptist was not afraid to die. That's why he confronted King Herod and his immorality. The fact is, Paul was not afraid of death. And that's why he was so powerful. And that's why his witness made such a difference, that he had no fear. How could he not be afraid, you ask? Well, I believe that he chose to focus on the unseen glory, which is eternal, and not on the seen affliction, which is transient. He talks about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul tells us that his afflictions, are, they're, they're just light and they're momentary when compared to the eternal weight of glory that is to come. So he was not afraid to die. He looked to the reward and to the joy that follow after death. Why was Paul not afraid to die? I believe that he chose to focus on the resurrection of Christ. Paul taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that Christ rose from the dead in accordance with the scriptures. And because Jesus was raised from the dead, we too one day will rise from the dead. Why was Paul not afraid to die? Because he knew that dying was not losing, that dying was gaining. Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
And so all of these references clearly show us that Paul was not afraid to die. And because he had this this courage, it provided a certain freedom, a, a certain passion, a certain uncontainable boldness that could neither be denied nor disputed. This must be an exhilarating time in the life of the Apostle Paul. Granted, he was again faced with many serious charges, which he was totally innocent. And certainly these accusations hurt. Not even the great apostle was immune to emotional challenges when injustice was heaped upon his his, his, uh, shoulders. But Paul also had the satisfaction of knowing that though men maligned him, his Lord loved him and continued to be with him. And what matters is that you know that you are Christ's and you belong to him if you've repented and trusted in him and nothing this world can ever do to you will ever harm you ultimately for one minute. It's because we're afraid to die that we're afraid to live, but if we're not afraid to die, we can live freely. That's what God's called us to be in our Christian witness. What matters is that you know that if you are in Christ this morning, the God of the heavens says, you are my child and you are mine forever and I am with you and I love you. What matters is that you know that Jesus has been through the fire and he has been through the pain and he has been through the heartache and he has persevered. Jesus did it. Paul did it. We're saying this morning, so can you. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you can stand up. And you can live a life of freedom because you have no fear of death. Look at this take-home section this morning. That first one says, what do you fear most in your life? Maybe it's not death. Maybe you fear something else. The fear of someone else, a financial catastrophe, the fact that that you won't get uh, the job that you want? What do you fear most in this life? Does that fear paralyze you or does it remind you to lean into Jesus and his power and his plan for your life? Secondly, what do you do when you face false accusations? We're seeing a lot of this here in Acts. What do you do when you face false accusations? Have you learned to spend more time talking to God about it than defending yourself to others? Three, What if you had no fear of death? What if that was not an issue? What if you had no fear of death? How would that change your life and your ministry opportunities? Would they be different or would they remain the same? Our prayer for you is that you would not be afraid. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, then we want to invite you to come into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus. And so after we close in in our last song, we'll have a few people standing right over here, and we'd love to talk to you about, about your greatest fear. We'd like to talk to you about the solution to that fear being Christ and Scripture and His Word. And we'd like to share with you the hope of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. My encouragement to you this morning is do not be afraid. Trust in the Lord, and He will always be with you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to examine in the life of Paul, his ongoing courageous defense of the gospel, his ongoing uh, wisdom of how to maneuver through difficult situations. This case, a little bit of a surprise appealing to Caesar, and yet we know that's certainly lawful and appropriate, and at times we might need to do the same. 
Ultimately, God, we pray that we would just adhere to the message that Paul preached to Felix and maybe again to Festus about about the righteousness of Christ, about the self-control that we can exhibit in the power of the Spirit and about the judgment to come. No matter what happens, wherever we are, whatever we face, may the gospel be on display in our lives and in our character May it be gospel truths that are on the tip of our tongue, on the edge of our lips, that when we're in situations that can be difficult, somehow, some way, you would give us the words to speak truths about Jesus. And I pray, God, for those of us who struggle with fear, the fear of death or the fear of persecution or the fear of losing our job, the fear of whatever. God, I pray that you would embolden us today to realize, you know what, that's really been crippling me. That's been, that's been, I've been, I've been in bondage to it. It's been preventing me from being able to be free and to be courageous and to speak out without shame or without fear of, of, of what others may think or say about me. God, I pray that you would help us to be fearless at work this week and in school this week and with our neighbors this week, that we would be fearless about what they think about us, if they think we're cuckoo or religious fanatics or whatever. God, just help us to say, you know what, it's all about Christ. It's all about him. Let me share with you how you could know him today and pray that you would encourage us as we sing this last song, as we reflect on what we've learned, as we talk about it amongst ourselves. We pray as well for safety again for us as we travel back home, as we consider the rest of the events of this day. Pray that you would be exalted in every aspect of it, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.